So the first car I ever drove was a 1983 Oldsmobile Delta 88. I suppose in many ways it was a great car, unless of course your goal was to look cool. In high school, most people, myself included, that is the goal, to look cool. And so for that reason, I was not a huge fan of the Oldsmobile Delta 88. Although I will say this, as I look back objectively now, years removed, I have to say, the car did have many good things going for it. On the one hand, it was so large that I have no doubt if I was in an accident, I probably would have been safe. It was like driving a tank at some level. It was a very safe car. It was, it was a dream to drive. It felt like it was gliding rather than driving, which wasn't great if the weather was bad. Sometimes you'd find yourself fishtailing all over the place, but it was just a smooth driving car. And on top of that, because of its size, it had all kinds of comfort and spaciousness. But what it possessed in safety and what it possessed in comfort is certainly lacked in appearance. Right, the outside of the car was not modern in any sense of the word. And on top of that, it was gigantic. This was a huge car. I feel confident you probably could have landed a helicopter on the front hood of this car. It was huge. And so I have to say that although it was safe and although it was comfortable and all of those things, I didn't really appreciate the Oldsmobile Delta. In fact, for many years, the Oldsmobile Delta was a source of great embarrassment for me. And maybe that shows how shallow I was, but I can't tell you how many times I was embarrassed to drive that car. It felt like any time I parked, I'd have two parking spots just to fit the car. It was an embarrassment. And perhaps it's because of my pent-up years of embarrassment of driving this car when I got the chance to drive a brand-new Chevy 4x4 red pickup as part of our high school's community service day, I was there. I jumped on the opportunity to drive that truck. Now, community service day is probably what you'd expect. Every year we would have one day where we'd have a community service project day, and our school would find out about things around town, uh, you know, paint jobs or building fences or gathering debris or those types of things, and they would send us out as students to just serve in the community. And so because there were a lot of jobs that required hauling away of things, they would encourage the students, if you have access to a pickup truck, bring it to school that day. And so it was that my best friend, Derek Kent, brought his dad's brand new Chevy 4x4 red pickup to community service day. Now, I don't see a lot of pickups driving around here in New York. I don't, I don't know if that's something that's valued much here, but in Iowa, having a pickup was a pretty big deal. Now, as a complete side note, I have to say this, that in Texas, having a pickup truck is not just a big deal. It's kind of a rite of passage. I'm not sure that you can actually consider yourself a Texan until you've driven or you've owned a pickup truck that is large and you may or may not have a need for. It's certainly a part of being a Texan, drive a pickup truck. In Iowa, pickup trucks were not that big a deal, but they were still a pretty cool thing. Now, I, I don't remember how it happened or how the occasion arose that I had the chance to drive this truck. I can't remember if my friend Derek went off to do something else, or maybe he just thought, I feel sorry for that guy for driving that old car for so long. I will let him drive this truck. But somehow I got the opportunity to drive, and I don't remember even what we were doing. I just remember that he gave me the keys, and I had to back a short distance out of the high school parking lot and then drive somewhere. Now, this did not go well. It did not go well. I, I hopped in the car, and I started to back up. And within a few feet, I remember everyone started yelling, stop, stop, stop. And whenever you're driving, just for the record, that's not a good thing, especially if you're backing up and people are like, stop, stop, stop. And so I got out of the car, and to my horror, I realized that unbeknownst to me, there had been a metal trash can that was placed right beside this brand-new pickup truck. And as I was backing up, it was scraping the entire side of the truck. This was not a good moment. I don't know if you've ever had that moment before where you realize something terrible has just happened. I'm sure you have. Um, and, and granted, there are many scales of terribleness. I understand that. And this is not on the largest scale, but that was a terrible moment for me. I got out of the truck and I looked at it and I thought, how did this happen? 
And of course, immediately I thought, oh man, my friend Derek, he probably shouldn't have been letting me drive. He's going to be in big trouble. And of course, I thought, this is going to cost me a ton to fix a scrape that is that large on the size of a pickup. I know that I don't even have the money to pay for this. But the thing I feared most is I knew that I was going to have to tell Derek's dad, Dan. Now, Dan was like a second dad to me. I was over at his house many nights for dinner. In fact, in my pre-driving years, Dan often picked me up with Derek to take me places. He could not have been kinder to me over the years. In fact, even to this day, I would still say that's true. He was a kind man to me. I have to say, I was terrified to tell him about this. After all, I just put a huge scratch in his brand new pickup truck. And although he'd never been mad at me personally, like most dads I knew growing up, I knew there was the possibility that anger could be lurking at the surface. And so I thought, I have no idea what he's going to do. I was terrified. I knew I was in the wrong. I knew I deserved to pay for the damages. I knew I probably deserved to be chewed out for being so reckless and not looking to make sure that it was safe to back up. I knew that I had no standing before Dan. And so I went to tell him, and none of that happened. All the things that I feared, not one of them happened. He offered his forgiveness. He refused to let me pay. And he never mentioned the incident to me again. Now, to be fair, he never let me drive one of his vehicles again. <laughs> but I have to say, I, I don't think I can blame him. I would like to think that looking back, that made my backup skills better. Uh, that I'm a better backer up because of that. But I, I, I will say this too. Uh, for those of you who saw me try to uh, back the moving truck out of our driveway in Mount Kisco, you know there's still some work to be done there. All that to say, when I look back on that incident, the thing that I remember most is not the horrifying moment where I realized that I had this huge scrape on the truck, but I will always remember the grace that Dan showed me. There's something about receiving undeserved, undeserved favor, mercy, grace that sticks with you. I'd venture to say that if you've ever received grace in the truest sense of the word, something that you did not deserve, or if you've ever received mercy, not getting what you do deserve, if you've ever received one of those things, I would guess that it still sticks with you today. There's something about grace that resonates with all of us. And perhaps it's for that reason, when I first read the story in 2 Samuel 9 of David and Mephibosheth, I love the story of David and Mephibosheth because it is a story of grace. Now in our journey through the Old Testament the last several weeks building up to Christmas, undoubtedly the stories we've covered in previous weeks are much better known than this one. Most people have heard of Noah and the Ark. Most people have heard of Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac. Most people have heard the story of David and Goliath. And certainly there are many people over the years who've been named after Noah or David or Abraham or Isaac. And there's not many Mephibosheths. But I'll say this. Of all the stories that we've looked at, this is quite possibly the most clear in pointing us to Christ. In fact, I would argue it's hard to read this story and not see the echoes of Christ. And so again, let's read 2 Samuel 9. Again, remembering, this is the word of God. Verse 1, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. 
And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. The love that David shows for Mephibosheth in this story is pretty remarkable. When we think about love in our culture, oftentimes we're talking about an emotional feeling, a kind of ooey-gooeyness. That's what we think of when we think of love, the sentimental feeling. But love oftentimes is selfless action, and we see that clearly pictured here. David, in the manner of Philippians 2 that we read about where we are challenged to set aside our interests for the sake of others, this is exactly what David does for Mephibosheth. And we see that love displayed starting in verse 1. Again, verse 1 says this, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now the fact that David would be asking, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? This is not an unusual question. David, of course, you would know, would be the king that came right after Saul. And it would not be an abnormal question for a new king to ask, are there any relatives left of the old king's regime? If you remember the story of Saul and David, Saul was not a huge fan of David's. In fact, that's probably an understatement. After David kills Goliath, from that point forward, Saul is intensely jealous of David. On multiple occasions, he attempts to kill David. In fact, for most of Saul's kingship, David is literally on the run for his life. So if you remember, Saul wants to kill David, and then you take into account that in the ancient Near East, it would be common practice for a new king to kill all of the old king's relatives. And here's why. Because the old king's relatives would often want to make a claim to the throne. And so to have a relative who was still living meant that there was a potential threat to the throne. And so if you take those two things into account, that Saul wanted to kill David, And you take into account also that in the ancient Near East, new kings would kill old kings' relatives. It's not surprising that David would ask, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Now you would expect that the reason he's asking that is so that he can kill those relatives. Again, any relative of Saul's would be a threat to the throne. Now put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. Again, in our culture, this may be hard to understand, but put yourself in David's shoes. In the days before elections, and civil politics. And I know that much of what we have now hardly qualifies as civil, but when you compare it to all of history, certainly the politics that we have now are much more civil than in the past. In the past, when someone wanted to overthrow a government, it would almost always mean bloodshed and murder, and that would certainly be the case for David. And so it would not be uncommon if there was a relative alive from the old king that he would try to violently lay claim to the throne. And so if you were David, it would make sense that you would ask, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? After all, if you don't take out that person, it's likely that they will take you out. But what's odd here is that David asks, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? But he doesn't ask that so that he can get retribution or so that he can take them out. But rather he says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul so that I may show them kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's surprising. 
This is not what you would expect of a king. You would not expect that a king would ask, is there anyone left of my greatest rival's family? I want to show him kindness. Now Jonathan, you may also remember, was the son of Saul. And Jonathan was fiercely loyal to David. In fact, he was so loyal to David that at one point, Saul, Jonathan's father, attempts to kill Jonathan because he's so frustrated that Jonathan is so loyal to David. Jonathan and David had a unique relationship. They had a great friendship. In 1 Samuel 20, they make a covenant. And David, as part of his covenant, as his end of the covenant, says that he will show kindness to the house of Jonathan and to his descendants. And so in many ways, what we're reading here in 2 Samuel 9 is the fulfillment of that covenant in 1 Samuel 20. David is keeping his word, which tells us a lot about the character of David. It's one thing to keep your word when it's easy. It's another thing to keep your word when it might cause you harm. But David here is keeping his covenant. And so we ask, are there any relatives of the house of Saul? And it turns out that there is one relative, a son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. Look at verses 2 through 5 again. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And let's pause there for a second. To this point, we don't even know his name. We don't know his name. We haven't even been told that his name is Mephibosheth. And from the start, the author is trying to clue us in that Mephibosheth has very little to offer. The first thing and the last thing that we are told about Mephibosheth is that he is crippled or that he is lame in both feet. The author is trying to communicate something to us. In the ancient Near East, this would mean that he was not a person that would be of value. And the fact that we're not even told his name, but we're told that he is crippled in his feet means this was the defining characteristic for Mephibosheth. Now, how Mephibosheth came to be lame is pretty interesting. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 4. So just five chapters back. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. So how was it that Mephibosheth became lame or crippled in both feet? 2 Samuel 4, verse 4 tells us the story. Verse 4 says this, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan, they both died, came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, we don't know for sure what happened, but it's likely that Mephibosheth's nurse was aware of the practice of new kings killing old king's relatives. And so when the nurse heard that Jonathan and Saul had both died, likely in response to that, and being afraid that the new king's men could come at any time, in her haste she flees. And we're not sure what happens. Maybe she drops Mephibosheth, or maybe somehow Mephibosheth is trampled. But whatever the case is, he becomes lame. And we don't know what that means exactly. Is he paralyzed? Can he walk? We don't know. But what we do know is that his disability, his inability to walk, his lameness, this is what defines him in this culture. Even his name indicates this to be true. The name Mephibosheth means the one who scatters shame. Everything about Mephibosheth was related to this idea of being shameful. It's not just that he was crippled or lame. It appears that he's also in hiding. There's no other reason to explain why he would be at Lodabar. Lodabar actually literally means the place of no pasture. It doesn't appear to be the type of place you'd want to live unless you have to live there. And it seems that it's likely that Mephibosheth is there because he is hiding from David. 
He knew what his grandfather Saul had done. And he knew that retribution was likely, and so he's in a place of hiding. And so you have to understand this. When David comes looking for Mephibosheth, for Mephibosheth, this would not have been a good day. In fact, this was probably the day that he had been dreading for a really long time. And maybe even perhaps for a long time, he'd been praying that this day would never come. And yet it comes. And as evidenced by his reaction in verse 6, I think it's obvious that Mephibosheth did not expect something good to happen. Look at verse 6. It says this, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. So Mephibosheth falls on his faith. He's pleading for mercy at this point. Again, I think Mephibosheth knew what Saul had done to David. And in his mind, he probably is thinking, I'm about to get what's been coming to me. But then something really interesting happens in verse 7. Verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear, which is another indication to us that Mephibosheth probably expected something bad to happen. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Not only is David not going to kill Mephibosheth, he's going to restore to him the land of Saul, and he is going to allow Mephibosheth to eat at his own table. This is a remarkable story of undeserved favor. There's nothing that Mephibosheth has done to earn this. There's no reason why he should be treated as one of the king's sons, which we'll read about here in just a minute. There's no reason why he should eat at the king's table, and yet that's exactly what happens. It's undeserved favor. It's grace. It's mercy. And that fact is not lost on Mephibosheth. Look at verse 8. His response is this. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? In Hebrew culture, a dog was a despised animal. In fact, if you remember from last week, when David, or excuse me, when Goliath is taunting David, one of the things he says, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? This is an insult. A dead dog was about as low as you could get because a dead dog would be an unclean animal as well. And so you have this uncleanness, and you have a dog, you have all these factors. So if Mephibosheth is referring to himself as a dead dog, this is as low as it gets. He's saying, why would you treat me this way? I'm the lowest person on the totem pole, and yet you are responding to me this way. Why? And it's obvious that David isn't just giving a show of words. He means to follow through. Look at the way the passage ends. Verse 9, And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul... And to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my king commands, all, all my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. I love the story of Mephibosheth. And the main reason I love the story of Mephibosheth is because I think Mephibosheth's story is our story in Christ. This is an exact representation, it seems. This is a foreshadowing of what's to come. Mephibosheth, his story is our story. Think about this. Apart from Christ, like Mephibosheth, we are broken and incapable of accomplishing anything on our own. Again, look at verse 8 and see how um, Mephibosheth describes himself. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? 
Mephibosheth recognized he did not deserve David's favor. If anything, given the actions of his grandfather Saul, he deserved the wrath of David. And it's not as if Mephibosheth is bringing something to the table to offset all that Saul had done. He brings nothing to the table. In this culture, he's defined by his disability. On top of that, he's a part of the rival kingdom. There is nothing that Mephibosheth brings to the table that would offset what Saul does. Which plays into the fact why Mephibosheth refers to himself as a dead dog. He is the lowest of lows. But understand this, apart from Christ, we too do not deserve favor. Apart from Christ. Turn to Ephesians 2 for just a second. Or if you don't want to turn, that's okay. You can just listen along. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Consider this, and this is our condition apart from Christ. And that phrase is important, apart from Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Apart from Christ, our situation is actually much worse than Mephibosheth's. It's not just that we're lame. It's that we are spiritually dead. Listen, most of us tend to think that God owes us something, which is why we get so frustrated when things don't go the way that we want. We think that God owes us a good and easy life, or we think that God owes us eternity. But listen, the reality is that God owes us nothing. We have rebelled against Him. In our nature, we are rebellious. Apart from Christ, we deserve nothing good. And there is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. Mephibosheth falls on his face in this story because he recognizes that he is completely at the mercy of David. He desperately needed David to show favor. And so too do we desperately need God to show us favor. Because like Mephibosheth, we need favor because of someone else. Why was it that Mephibosheth earned favor? Was it because of something he did? Was it because of something he did to impress David? No, Mephibosheth earns favor because of someone else. Look at verse 7, 2 Samuel 9. Again, 2 Samuel 9, verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Mephibosheth earns favor not because of his own faithfulness, but because of Jonathan's. There's nothing Mephibosheth did. It was everything that Jonathan had done. And of course, the exact same thing is true for us. The exact same thing is true for us. We cannot earn God's favor. We are dependent on someone else's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It is only because of the righteousness of Christ that we can earn the favor of God. It's not anything that we have done or we will do. It's everything that Jesus did. The only way that Mephibosheth made it to the king's table was not because of his own actions, it was because of the actions of Jonathan. And there is nothing that we can do to make it to the king's table either. It is only because of the actions of another, in this case, Jesus Christ. And that, by the way, is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world cannot explain how wicked sinners like us could enter into the presence of a holy and perfect God. But Christianity has the answer. Is because we enter based on the righteousness of another. We enter, based, we enter based on the righteousness of Christ. 
If we have placed our faith in Christ, then His righteousness is credited to us. In much the same way that Mephibosheth received favor because of another, so too we receive the favor of God because of the righteousness of another. But our similarities with Mephibosheth don't end there. Like Mephibosheth, we too, on the basis of another's righteousness, can eat at the king's table and be treated like the king's sons. Again, verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Here's the thing about Mephibosheth in this story. His identity completely changes. At one point, he was nothing but a lame and crippled man living in isolation and fear without any hope of a future. But that's not who he is upon encountering David. When he encounters David, everything changes for Mephibosheth because now he is treated like one of the king's sons. He sits at the king's table. His identity has completely shifted. He deserved to be punished as a member of Saul's household, and yet now he's treated like one of David's sons. Of course, the same is true for us. Apart from Christ, we are broken and helpless. We're wretched sinners without a future. But if we're in Christ, that's not who we are now. In fact, listen to 1 Corinthians 6. Again, you can turn there if you want, but 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It says this Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Verse 11 says, that's not what you are anymore. You may have been these things, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. In much the same way that David, or excuse me, that Mephibosheth's identity completely changes, when we believe in Christ, our identity changes as well. And here's the crazy thing. It's not just that we're treated like sons. We're told here that Mephibosheth, I knew I would mess that name up at some point. Mephibosheth is treated like a son of David. But here's the crazy thing. We are not treated like sons of God. We are sons of God. Romans 8. Romans 8, just a couple of books after 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, one book before 1 Corinthians, just kidding. Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we are in Christ, it's not just that we're treated like sons or daughters. It's that we are adopted and we are sons or daughters. And not just symbolically, in the same way that you would adopt a pet, but we are full-fledged members of the family. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. It's astonishing that a lame man like Mephibosheth from the house of Saul, could end up eating at the king's table and being treated like a son. But that is nothing compared to the fact that a wicked person like you or me could make our way into the family of God and be a son or daughter and co-heirs with Christ. That's incredible. 
That's amazing grace. I love the story of David and Mephibosheth. I love this story because I think it reminds us of our story. And I pray that as we read this story, that we see the shadow of the cross. That once again, we are reminded that the Old Testament points to Christ. Because all of Scripture testifies about Him. As we get closer and closer to Christmas, and as we get closer and closer to the day that we celebrate when Jesus became man, I hope you realize that this has always been the plan. It's always been the plan that Jesus would come to rescue us from our sins. The question is, as we see the shadow of Christ in this story, will we respond accordingly? Listen, every week I think it's appropriate for us just to say, for those who are non-believers and are here today, maybe you're here today and you want nothing to do with Christianity and you came because someone dragged you here. Or maybe you're a a cultural Christian in some regards. You grew up going to the church, but you never actually placed your faith in Christ. I would challenge you in light of this story. First of all, as always, let me say, I'm glad you're here, and I know God has you here for a reason. But I would challenge you, if you're here today and you are a non-believer, I would challenge you to recognize that Mephibosheth's plight is your plight. That you are broken and without a future. Would you recognize that there is an offer to sit at the king's table and to be a part of the king's family? Would you recognize that? Unlike Mephibosheth, it's not because of the rebellion of someone else that you're in trouble. It's because of your own rebellion. But like Mephibosheth, there's still hope for you to sit at the king's table and be a part of his family based on the righteousness of another. If you are here today and you do not know Christ, I would ask you, would you take advantage of the great exchange? The great exchange meaning that Christ takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. Will you take advantage of that? Will you respond in saving faith and recognize that when you turn to Christ, you can receive the righteousness of Christ and you can sit at the king's table and you can be one of the king's sons or daughters because of the righteousness of Christ. Non-believer, if you're here today, as your friend, I'm asking you, turn to Christ. If you're a follower of Christ and if you're already seated at the table and you're already your son or daughter of the king, the question I think I would ask for you is, will you live in light of that reality? When I was in seminary, one of my favorite professors was a man named T.J. Betts. I love Dr. Betts, not because he was a good teacher, although I think he was a great teacher, but because by all accounts, he seemed to be a better man in Christ. And at the time, when I was in seminary, Dr. Betts had a couple of sons who were either right on the cusp of being teenagers or they were teenagers. And he told us this story one time where some, both of his sons had actually gotten into trouble. And we asked them, why did you do this? They responded the way that so many teenagers respond over the years. They said, well, this is what everyone else was doing. All our friends were doing it. And I remember what Dr. Butts said to his sons. And in fact, the reason I remember this story is because of what he said to his sons. His sons had said, oh, we're doing this because everyone else was doing it. And this is what he said. He said, listen, that may be true for other kids, but you are a Betts boy. Betts boys don't act that way. Betts boys act differently. And I think that's a perfect illustration of what we're talking about here. Our identity in Christ, our identity as sons and daughters of Christ, it changes everything. It may be true that other people live for other things, but we are sons of the King. Of course we live differently. Of course we live differently. Listen, if you are a believer in Christ, if you are a child of God, then you are a co-heir with Christ. And that should change everything. I would contend that it should change the way you think. After all, you are a child of God and a co-heir with Christ, and that makes a difference. There may be times where you feel defeated. There may be times where you feel discouraged. There may be even times where you feel like your life is of little value. But if you are a follower of Christ, know this. 
You are a child of God. You are a son or daughter of the King. And you will share in the inheritance of Christ. And that should give you value. Several years ago, I worked at a well-known Christian camp in the Midwest. <clears throat> because it was well-known, it was not uncommon for famous athletes to send their sons or daughters there to go to the camp. And although we were not supposed to treat them differently, just from an outsider's view, I could tell that they were always treated a little bit differently. And I could always tell that they acted a little bit differently too. Their identity was shaped by who their parents were. I'm not saying that's a good thing necessarily, and I'm not saying that we should in any way act like we have some sort of uh, entitlement as children of God. But what I am saying is this, that the fact that we are a son or daughter of the king, that should change things. That should change the way we view things. We should trust that if we are his children, he will do what is best for us. And that should give us confidence that no matter what is happening, he is still caring for us. Listen, if it were up to my sons, especially the younger ones, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we would have cookies and cake every meal. And we would probably play Wii Mario Kart all day. That's what they would do. But that's not what's best for them. And although, the, although they may not see it, as a parent, I'm able to see they need things other than cookie and cake. And they need to do things other than play we. And listen, we may think that we know what's best for us. But understand this, God knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for us. And as his children, he wants what is best for us. And so we trust him. Listen, the fact that we are seated at the king's table, the fact that we are his children, that changes things. It changes our view. It allows us to trust him more because we recognize this is a true thing for us who are in Christ. We are his children. Of course he will care for us. But I'd also argue that this fact that we are his sons, this should change the way we live. I think it should change everything about the way we live. But let me give you one specific example that I think comes from this story. Knowing that we have been loved like Mephibosheth, I would think that that would give us a desire to love other people in the same way. Listen, I want you to know this. Loving Mephibosheth probably did not benefit David in any way. At least not in the tradi traditional sense of benefit. Bringing Mephibosheth into his family and letting him sit at his table was not a strategic move. Mephibosheth was a broken man from a rival kingdom. There's not much that he could offer David in terms of gaining some sort of political clout. And yet David loved him anyway. Of course, the same is true for us. There's not much that we brought to the table either. And yet God loved us anyway. And I would think that if we grasp that to be true, if we understand that to be true, that we would be motivated to love other people in the same way. Do we genuinely love other people because like David, we want to show them the kindness of God? In verse 3, that's David's motivation. He says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show them the kindness of God? Do we love people to show them the kindness of God? Or do we only love people when it makes our life better, when it benefits us? Typically speaking, I think that we are motivated to love others when in some way we get a benefit in return. Think about the people that we're usually friends with. We're usually friends with people who can benefit us in some way. Maybe it's someone who has connections in business. Or maybe it's someone who can help us to be socially connected. Or maybe we're friends with people because they have similar life stories and when we're around them it makes us feel more comfortable. Or maybe we're friends with people because they just make us happy and they bring enjoyment. Now I want you to hear me here. I'm not saying that you shouldn't hang around people that you enjoy. And I, I'm not saying that you should surround yourself only with people who make you miserable. That, that would be foolish. But the point I am trying to make is this. That most of the time, we only love people who can do something for us. 
few, of, few times do we actually love others with the true selflessness. Few times do we actually love other people without any reference to what they can do for us. And even fewer times do we actually love people when they can do nothing for us. Instead, we usually love when we get something in return. But as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, even non-believers love those who love, who, who love them. Right? Even non-believers love those who love them. But we are called to love selflessly. We are called to love the unlovable. We are called to love those who can do nothing for us. So there may be a variety of different ways this works itself out. Maybe it means that we look for those who we know can't benefit us in any traditional sense of the word, and yet we love them anyway. Maybe it means we look for the disadvantaged people in our society, and as Christians, we make it our goal to reflect the love of Christ to them. Or maybe it means that there's someone in our life who's difficult, and we go out of our way to show love and kindness, even though that person continues to remain difficult. Or maybe it means that there's someone we love, and they're acting in a very unlovable way, and yet we continue to show them grace. Or maybe it means a variety of other things, but I'm convinced of this, that we are called to love like David loves Mephibosheth. More importantly, we are called to love like Christ loved us. I love the story of David and Mephibosheth because I think it's a beautiful picture of undeserved favor. It's a story of grace. But it's also a story that challenges us. It challenges us to consider, are we actually sitting at the king's table? It challenges us to think differently about our identity if we are in Christ. It challenges us to live differently and to love differently. But ultimately, I think it beckons us to the cross where we see Christ crucified on our behalf so that we can sit at the king's table so that we can be one of the king's sons. And that, I would argue, should change everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of David and Mephibosheth a story that maybe we don't know as well, and yet it so clearly pictures Christ. And Father, we are asking that we would be challenged by this story to consider, are we at the king's table? That we would be challenged by this story to think differently about our identity. That we would be challenged by this story to love differently. To care about those who are disadvantaged. To love the unlovable. To love people that we love that maybe are doing things that are unlovable. And we're praying that we would live out this story and that it would be reflected in the way we live every single day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.